everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine time whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I've been largely amused lately by the big old stink that the Thundercats proposed relaunch has been kicking up. I mean, the original was a pretty bad show. Really good character design, really bad writing. I mean, I loved it when I was a kid, but kids like all kinds of stupid shit. You know what else I loved when I was a little kid? Baby food. Who'd I think I was? Robocop? I was no Robocop. If the dad from that 70s show would have shot me even one time, I would have gone down like a sack of bricks. Stupid younger me. But speaking of stupid younger me, I did love the Thundercats. Specifically, I loved Panthro. Like, he was obviously the coolest. He had nunchucks, he drove a tank, he wore suspenders with no shirt. You know, cool stuff. I liked Panthro so much that I started to see characteristics of Panthro where they were maybe not intended. Like, I remember Cliff's dad on The Cosby Show sounded a little like Panthro, and I was super convinced that that was the guy who did the voice of Panthro. And anytime I saw somebody using nunchucks, I was like, that guy's trying to be like Panthro. And, you know, every time I saw a guy wearing suspenders with no shirt or driving a tank shaped like a cat, I was like, that guy's trying to be Panthro. Even though probably those guys were just out there living their lives, driving tanks that were shaped like cats, wearing suspenders with no shirts, and using nunchucks. See, what I was engaging in was an activity that the human brain likes to do. It's called panthropomorphism. Thank you, thank you, I'll be here all week. Sheesh, looking at the length of this synopsis, I might be here all week. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. I've been sitting on this synopsis rhyme for a while, but this coverage of the new Teen Titans Annual Number 2 seems like the special occasion I may have been waiting for. It's submitted by Devin Tuhey. Corey's hopping dimensions and it's been a painy. He's caught in plots so tangled that they're worthy of Haney, eating amulets like they were slices of pizza, so Hub recapped some Titans with his charming wife Lisa. In case Corey's not listening to those four Titan podcasts, I thought I'd try to sum up those tales super duper fast. Racism doesn't exist, but no one told Vic Stone's friend. He tried to bomb the UN and met a very sad end. Arella mothered Raven after some foreboding starts. Her birth caused Azeroth to smell like really smelly farts. Trigon's in her tummy and she can't feel emotions, so she looks sadly away into the canyons and oceans. Beast Boy lost his parents and he wears tidy whities He talks about sex as much as two Aphrodites. He may not know what sex is, but don't burst his bubble. We should switch our gaze to Cory and all of her trouble. Her sister's honey boo-boo mixed up with mommy dearest and had turned homicidal because she wasn't the nearest to Tamaran's throne, and so she hated poor Cory. There's some serious abuse and some dead dogs in this story. But all you need to know is Coriander's the top sis, and that is what I'm calling a synopsis synopsis. P.S. Anger is bad. Whew. Thanks, Devin. The New Teen Titans Annual, number 2, 1983. I guess, you know, all of 1983, because it's an annual. The Murder Machine. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by George Perez, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Len Wein. Teen Titans Roll Call. Robin. Kid Flash. Wonder Girl. B-12. 
Beast Boy, Raven, Cyborg, Starfire, and Terra. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Robin was feeling jilted when his shitty dad Batman brought home a new orphan to mentor. To fill the void of monomaniacal crime-hating older assholes in his life, the boy Wonder started palling around with world's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase. The two purported crime fighters consummated their May-December bromance by breaking into the house of Mafia chieftain Anthony Scarapelli and threatening the cowering crime boss at gunpoint. When the mortified mafioso pointed out that this sort of behavior wasn't the sort of thing that district attorneys were allowed to do, Chase replied that that was why he had brought a masked teenage boy with him, to make everything nice and legal. What a terrible district attorney! Robin felt used and, after making the arrest, told Chase that he disapproved of his strong-arm tactics and would no longer work with the civil rights circumventing civil servant. Hooray! Just when it looked like Adrian Chase's day couldn't possibly get any worse, the disgruntled district attorney and his wife Doris went to tuck in their young children. And their apartment exploded in a deadly ball of flame. Jeez. Some days it just doesn't pay to violently harass and violate the civil rights of the head of a mafia family. Who knew? In other Teen Titans news, Kid Flash announced that he was quitting the team. Only, not in the sense that he was going to stop hanging out at the Titan Tower, or stop going out on missions with the team yet. Only in the sense that he... um... yeah. Meanwhile, Raven continued to struggle to control her powers, fearing that any use of her ill-defined magical nonsense abilities could lead to her demonic bad dad Trigon crawling out of her soul tummy and destroying the universe. And finally, it turned out that Terra, the streetwise young earthbending orphan who had recently joined the team, is, unbeknownst to her titular teammates, secretly a supervillain who is working for Deathstroke the Terminator, the super assassin who uses 90% of his brain but only 50% of his eyeballs, to bring down the Titans from within. God zooks! How will Robin respond to losing his second older mentor who hates laws nearly as much as he hates crime? How will Wally West roll with the group change now that he has resigned? And will Beast Boy turn into a monkey and eat a banana? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By continuing to be an asshole to his rad space princess girlfriend, and insisting that his teammates resort to the strong-arm tactics he recently reprimanded Adrian Chase for using. Damn it, dick. In absolutely no way whatsoever. And, of course he does. Hooray! The news of the recent explosion at World's Worst District Attorney Adrian Chase's apartment has just broken, and the press is having a field day. I mean, not a field day in the sense that they are outside having three-legged races and egg tosses and eating watermelon, but a field day in the sense that they are working extra hard at doing their jobs. So, kind of the opposite of a field day, I guess. A local TV anchor reports that Adrian Chase has been rushed to the hospital and is in critical condition but that there is no word yet on his wife Doris or their children. Presumably other people were affected by a building in Manhattan exploding, but they aren't related to the world's worst district attorney, so who cares? Some reporters spot Robin in the hospital waiting room and ask him, Hey, didn't you and Adrian just bust into Anthony Scarapelli's house in an unsanctioned, probably illegal, vigilante-style raid? A remarkably restrained Robin responds succinctly, with a curt, No comment. Smart move. The Titans already have enough PR problems after that whole brother blood fiasco. Way to minimize the damage. Then the reporter is like, Really? 
And Robin goes, damn it, you vultures, I hate the press. If the world's worst district attorney had to break the law in order to prosecute people for breaking the law, then he probably had a good reason for it. Now, everybody go away and leave me alone because I'm a busy boy and I've got a mob boss to illegally harass. Good day. So, yeah. You think maybe Batman could teach him how to do that thing where you ask him a question and then he's gone and the curtain's flapping? Because it seems like that might come in handy. After Robin storms off in a huff, the reporters question police captain Arthur Hall and ask him if he thinks Scarapelli is responsible for the explosion. He answers that it is too early in the investigation to have any conclusive evidence and that until there are more facts at his disposal, he has no further comments on the matter. What? A responsible person in a position of authority who acts like a goddamn grown-up? Maybe he could stop by the Titan Tower every once in a while and do some kind of big brother stuff with our heroes. The mentoring kind of big brother, not the dystopian fascist spying type. Although to be frank, the Titans could probably use some sort of government oversight. Across town, we see that the much-discussed mafioso, Anthony Scarapelli, is having troubles of his own. It seems that the mob boss's mob boss, a dapper elderly woman referred to reverently as Godmother Donna Amasidio, fears that Scarapelli's unauthorized explosion of the Chase household has resulted in a bit more media attention than the mafia would really like. The godmother tells the chastened chieftain that she expects him to turn over all of his records to her by tomorrow morning so that she can determine an appropriate course of action, re Scarapelli's future role in the organization. From the look of panic on Anthony's face, it appears that he doesn't have a great deal of confidence in the mafia's HR department. Back at the hospital, Robin has a heart-to-heart -heart with honest-to-goodness adult Captain Hall. Rather than ask for advice on how to behave at a press conference, the irascible boy detective inquires as to when the police plan on arresting Scarapelli for the firebombing. Hall patiently explains that they need evidence before making an arrest, and Robin once again flies off the handle, and is like, Evidence? Search warrants? Laws? These are concepts that after being mentored by Batman and Adrian Chase, I have only a vague concept of and a dismissive attitude towards. Speaking of people towards whom Robin has a dismissive attitude, Starfire and the other Titans soon arrive at the hospital to check in on Robin and inquire as to the condition of the Chase family. The belligerent boy wonder once again Heisman's Coriander away, ignoring her and informing the rest of the gang that he intends to continue harassing the Mafia and he'd like their help. Cyborg tries to calm his bellicose bird-themed buddy down, but Dick isn't having any. Just then, a doctor emerges from the operating theater, and we are informed that Adrian Chase died for approximately seven minutes, but then he got better. Just like Nikki Six from Motley Crue, who probably would have been a better DA. Anyway, Chase is still in critical condition and has a ton of shrapnel and stuff in him, but he'll probably make a full recovery. That's a relief. I bet the New York Post will have a headline like, All rise! Court back in session for the DOA DA! That's fun. Chase's wife and children died too. But regular style. Oh. Well, that's less fun. Back on Long Island, Anthony Scarapelli prepares himself to fight two wars. One against Robin and the Teen Titans, and the other a mob war against the Mafia's godmother, Donna Omosidio, who the cornered capo correctly concluded plans on executing him. Tony's first step was to file a restraining order against Robin. Shit, that's a good move. I'm surprised more villains don't go that route. Tony's next move is to call a fellow named The Monitor, a 
colorfully clad gentleman who, along with his assistant Lyda, runs a temp agency for supervillains from his secret satellite headquarters high in orbit above the Earth. Tony places an order to hire half a dozen supervillains for the month. Oh good. The introduction of six new characters. Because I was worried that the synopsis for this 42-page comic would be too short and uncomplicated. The next day, Robin goes to confront the multitasking mafioso in an Italian restaurant. It's a whole scene. Scarapelli puts down his bottle of red and his bottle of white long enough to sass the enraged speedo-clad teenager. Robin is about to get violent when his rad space princess girlfriend Starfire shows up and physically restrains the tempestuous teen, preventing him from violating his restraining order. Hooray! Then she drags him to the top of a skyscraper, tells him to stop being such a jerk, and smooches the angsty adolescent asshole. Unfortunately, we readers aren't the only voyeurs watching these two titans' tumultuous tribulations. An assassin is watching our impassioned protagonist through a sniper scope, and he is about to shoot Robin in the back of the head. Oh no! But then another sniper scope appears, and somebody shoots that first sniper through the back of his head. Hooray! I, I guess. But also, gross. Later that night, the corpse of the first assassin is delivered, all tied up with his hands behind his back, to the doorstep of one Anthony Scarapelli. Tony's right-hand man, a mustachioed gentleman bearing the evocative moniker Garote, recognizes the formerly alive hitman as a fellow member of the Scarapelli crime family. But who would tie up an already dead corpse? Why, this looks like the nonsensical handiwork of an incompetent loose cannon who doesn't play by the rules and is also bad at his job. Hmm. The plot thickens. Back at the Titan Tower, Robin has a dangerous and possibly unethical scheme to harass Scarapelli and illegally raid his various criminal operations. Due to the restraining order, he can't carry out the dubious missions himself, so the angsty adolescent entreats his teammates for their assistance. They have their concerns. Donna takes her longtime teammate aside and is like, Look, Robin, I know you're going through some shit, but we're supposed to be the good guys, and we can't do anything illegal. This scheme of yours isn't illegal, is it? Robin's like, Yes, it is 100% against the law and super illegal. Donna replies, Um, I heard no, it's not illegal, so I'm in, but it better not be illegal. The Titans all vote to help out their buddy in his vengeance quest against the Mafia. I'll accept Raven, that is. And just where is Raven? I'm so glad you asked. The avian-themed empath has used her magical nonsense powers to travel to her childhood home, the mystical realm of Azerath. When she left and formed the Teen Titans to help her fight her extra-dimensional despotic douchebag dad Trigon, the bearded weirdos who run Azerath told her that for violating their policy of not interfering with the outside world, she was banished and could never return. Now the young empath stands at the gates of the city and pleads with the city elders. I know I was banished from Azeroth, never to return when I forsook your ways. But a piece of my evil bad dad lives in my bird-shaped soul tummy and threatens to escape every time I use my powers. I'm kind of freaking out here. Can I come in, please? In their wisdom and compassion, the Beardo Weirdos respond, Uh, no. What part of banished from Azeroth, never to return, do you not understand? Get the fuck out of here. Dicks. Speaking of dicks, Robin's plan seems to be working. 
Donna and Beast Boy raid an airplane hangar that was filled with weapons about to be shipped illegally overseas. Then Gar turns into a monkey and eats a banana. Told ya. Wally and Starfire bust up a gambling den stocked with rigged equipment. And Vic and Tara invade a warehouse full of crooks who have been smuggling drugs inside of art forgeries. Which makes no sense seeing as both products are illegal. That's like if you didn't want to get caught reading a comic book during class, so you hid it inside a porno magazine. For our younger listeners, pornography used to come in the form of magazines that you had to steal from a store. The Titans don't have warrants, and there is no evidence that directly links these illegal operations to Scarapelli, but the murderous mafia boss suffers the loss of revenue from the disruption of his criminal enterprises just the same. Back at the Titan Tower, after returning from the day's missions, Donna confronts Robin and is like, Dick, I'm starting to think that these illegal raids that you told me were against the law might be illegal. Are they? Robin's like, yes. Placated, Donna replies, well, they'd better not be. Also, you've been a real asshole lately. Then she flies off. Hey, remember the supervillains that Tony hired from the evil space temp agency? Let's meet them. Villain number one is Scorcher. Scorcher has a flamethrower and wears a pink fire-resistant suit. His interests include fire, burning things, arson, flames, and being a creep about how much he loves fire. Villain number two is Spear. Spear is... not great. He looks and dresses like Mr. T, talks like Gambit, and throws a spear at people. Villain number three is Bazooka. Bazooka has a bazooka. Also, he's racist. Villain number four is Slasher. Slasher is an assassin who throws switchblades. When she talks, she uses a bunch of slang and calls people baby. She seems fun. Villain number five is Tanker. Tanker is encased in a robot-like sheath of bulky armor and has tank tracks for legs. He's probably a science-type guy because he talks politely without using slang or contractions. Villain number six is Cheshire. Cheshire gets a little more backstory than her criminal cohort and doesn't adhere to the same naming conventions, so it makes sense that she's the only one who has much of a career beyond this issue. Her real name is Jade, and she was raised in Hong Kong by an elderly Asian caricature named Wen Chang, who, judging from the seemingly arbitrary apostrophe placement in his name, may or may not be from space. Cheshire likes to poison people and is refined, and has long fingernails that she puts poison on. The day after Robin and Donna's little chat, the Titans are checking out another one of Robin's leads, an apparently abandoned warehouse that supposedly holds files that incriminate a certain portly mob boss that Dick is obsessed with. Unfortunately, the bust seems to be a bust, as the warehouse appears to be empty. Even more unfortunately, the warehouse isn't empty. It contains a certain sextet of recently introduced costumed criminals with predominantly uninspired names. It is a trap, and one that the Titans didn't even have the dubious pleasure of recognizing as such before they walked into it. Unprecedented. Slasher throws a knife that stabs the tail of the monkey that Gar had turned into. The emerald adolescent turns into a fly and attempts to flee, but his stiletto-slinging foe flings a blade that cuts his wings off. Things seem grim for the transforming teen, but then a stranger shows up and shoots Slasher in the head. Oh. Meanwhile... Scorcher lights things on fire, Bazooka fires his bazooka, and Spear throws a spear. Wally almost gets hit by the spear, and is concerned that he seems to be slower than he used to be. Also, didn't you quit the team, Wally? 
Go home already. Bazooka says a bunch of racist shit, and everyone on both teams points out what an asshole he is. Then Vic beats him up. Hooray! Terra uses her powers to put out some of the fire that Scorcher lit. Starfire heads to the roof to access the water tower and douse the rest of the flames, but she is intercepted by Cheshire, who kinda hits on the Tamaranian space princess for a minute, then beats her up with some fancy pro-wrestling-looking moves. Not bad. Tinker grabs Wonder Girl and seems like he's about to crush her. She struggles, but is not strong enough to escape his steel clutches. Oh no! Then she is strong enough to escape his steel clutches, so she does. Then she rips his armor off him and knocks him out. Wally momentarily gets his shit together enough to beat up Spear. Scorcher is about to light everyone on fire, but then that stranger from before shows up and kills Scorcher to death with some nunchucks. Okay. Huh, I wonder if that stranger is Panthro. Starfire's still having trouble with Cheshire, so Wally zooms in to lend a hand. Cheshire hits on him a little, then slashes him with her poisoned fingernails, telling him that it's a shame, but he'll be dead in a few minutes. The helpful murder stranger from before shows up and shoots at Cheshire, but he misses and she runs off into the night. With Wally seconds away from death, Raven senses his agony from nearly a universe away and teleports herself to the side of the super speedy teammate who has been a total dick to her for like the last ten issues. Risking her soul, her sanity, and potentially the fate of the universe itself, the unsteady empath uses her powers to heal her dying teammate. Later that night, our titular teens return to their tower to confront Robin about the fact that he's been a little bit of a monomaniacal dipshit lately. I mean, it's one thing to be a driven maniac who operates outside the letter of the law but gets results, damn it. It's kind of another to be a driven maniac who operates outside the letter of the law and doesn't get any results. Damn it. Lately, the boy wonder has been falling into the latter category. Huh? It's like an homage to his buddy Adrian. Maybe it's tribute incompetence. Robin responds sassily to the earned criticism of his peers and reveals that he recently found a recording that Chase made before the bombing, which says that if anything should happen to Chase and his family, the Teen Titans should go fight Anthony Scarapelli at his secret hideout in Death Valley, where he'll go to get some secret files that the rest of the Mafia will try to use against him. Chase's recording goes on to state that the two feuding factions of the mob will be meeting in the desert on Wednesday. Goodness. What an oddly specific and not at all suspicious recording to make in the final days before you get blown up. That Wednesday, the godmother of the mafia, Donna Omicidio, and her cadre of most trusted goons await the arrival of Anthony Scarapelli at the desolate site of their prearranged desert meeting. The godmother plans to kill Tony as soon as he turns over the file she needs. Scarapelli arrives alone as they had agreed. Suddenly, Raven appears out of nowhere and starts yelling, Look, I know you all want to murder each other, but please don't. Murder is bad, and I don't like it at all. Please go home. That's so Raven. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Donna Omicidio's henchmen opt not to go home and abandon their schedule murdering. So they are still there when Tony Scarapelli pushes a button on the garage door opener for his nearby underground bunker, and a whole bunch of helmeted dudes with jetpacks and future guns, who look like a sporting goods store version of Boba Fett, come flying out and start murdering the shit out of them. I think the takeaway here is that if a magic bird lady shows up and tells you to go home, go home. The vast majority of the godmother's thugs get murdered in the first few seconds. 
Then the Titans show up and start trouncing the budget Boba Fetts and the remaining Mafia goons alike, doing their best to minimize the amount of murder. In the ensuing chaos, Scarapelli manages to escape. Later that night, back on Long Island, Tony Scarapelli gloats to his buddy Garrote that with the incriminating files he has in his possession, nobody can ever touch him. Not the mob, not the law, not some enthusiastic superpowered teenagers, not an almost certainly dead, uniquely incompetent district attorney, nobody. Just as he finishes his fate-tempting gloat, Tony turns around to find a stranger in a fully masked, dope-looking ski suit pointing a machine gun at him. Hey, I bet that's the Titan's mysterious, helpful murder friend. The stranger introduces himself as the Vigilante and proclaims his intention to see that Scarapelli is brought to justice for his crimes, one way or another. Then he removes his ski mask and is revealed to be... Mr. Jupiter, the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world. What a twist. Just kidding. It's the world's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase. Obviously. Chase is about to gun Tony down when Robin shows up and is like, Knock it off, Adrian. I knew you made that tape you sent me after the bombing, not before, and that you were probably planning on pulling some shit like this. Now put down that gun. You aren't a killer. Uh, Dick? Have... You've been paying attention at all in this issue? He's killed, like, at least four people so far. While Chase is distracted by Robin's ill-informed, moralizing exposition, Scarapelli pulls out a gun and fires at the two vigilantes. Chase backhands Robin unconscious and returns fire, killing the fuck out of Scarapelli. When the police arrive at the scene of the crime, they find a still-snoozing Robin lying near the corpulent corpse of the Cosa Nostra crumb bum. When questioned as to who killed Anthony Scarapelli, a smirking Robin would only answer, I don't know, man. I was knocked out when the trigger was pulled. Could have been a lot of people. Ah, the Roadhouse defense. The press covering the case wonders if we've seen the last of the mysterious vigilante who killed the notorious crime boss. Good Lord, I hope so. Adrian Chase is the worst. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am well. How are you? I am also well. We had a very big comic book for the second week in a row to read. What'd you think? Let's see. I enjoyed that we did get to see the continuation of the previous story in this comic book. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was maybe twice as long as it needed to be to finish the story, where... Hmm. A you lot know, of extra stuff got thrown in, it felt like. It was kind of fun to have like these six extra bad guys that needed to get called in to have a warehouse fight. Sure. Like a good warehouse fight. Mm -hmm. But also, it was like that was like half the comic is like explaining their backstory, and then they have a fight. Yeah, and then they get murdered. Mm -hmm. And there's some not good stuff. Yeah, there were some issues, which we will definitely get into. Ugh. Overall, my feelings on it were it was beautifully drawn. I, as always, when he is not the inker, I miss Romeo Tangal's inks. Uh, this is once again inked by Pablo Marcos. And he does my favorite work that I've seen him do in this issue. But there are still a few panels that kind of bothered me where characters looked kind of more stylized and cartoonish than I think we're used to hmm. with some of the finishing. But overall, beautiful issue, beautifully laid out, honestly well written with pretty funny jokes. 
This is a well-written, beautifully drawn, well-executed comic that I kind of didn't like very much. Yeah, yeah, I could get on board with that. So, let's, uh, let's get into some of the details about it. Okay. Overall, what are your thoughts on this introduction of Adrian Chase as the Vigilante? Who saw that coming? Oh, gosh, not me. I don't know, annoyance. Yeah, me too, pretty much. I like his costume. His costume is dope. He looks like a skier. He is one of a few characters in this that I'm like, wait a minute, is this a throwback to an oh, old the... Teen Titans story? Because there's that other, like, skier holding a gun. Uh, I think it was from issue 16 that was, like, really cool looking. This is definitely more 80s looking. But yeah, I loved his outfit. I, it's a lazy name for a lazy character. Oh, he's a vigilante, so we'll call him Vigilante. He's a fucking Punisher knockoff. Mm -hmm. What makes the Punisher work as a character sometimes, and I'm not a huge Punisher fan, honestly, but the Punisher stories that I enjoy are similar to the Deathstroke stories that I enjoy. I was recently a guest on a podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, mm. which was really fun. We were talking about the new Deathstroke, the Terminator series. One of the hosts, Elena, I think it was her, described Deathstroke stories that work as kind of efficiency porn. And I think that's what works with The Punisher, too, is you see somebody who is single-minded about accomplishing a task, and then you get to see the ways they go about accomplishing it. Almost like a hyper-violent and stripped-down Rube Goldberg device of just, like, planning and execution. And I don't like this guy necessarily. I don't like what he's doing. But there's something satisfying about watching somebody devoid of emotion go about accomplishing a task. It's Damn what it. I like about the Stark books, too. The Parker novels. You don't get that with the vigilante. Mm. You just get the version of him that he's a vigilante. It also doesn't make sense that as a district attorney, he would be good at that shit. As a district attorney, why is he a brilliant marksman who's good at nunchucks? That is the magic of uh, comics, though, no? Yeah, just everybody's good at nunchucks and kung fu if they have recently suffered a serious injury that left them dead for minutes. Well, if you got revenge reasons, sure. He's got revenge reasons, but fuck, man, even in, like, Seagal movies, it takes him, like, a while to get back on his feet after being dead for a minute. We don't have that kind of time, Hub. <sighs> yeah. Got, what, 40 pages something to work with? Yeah, but there was so much setup for this story so long in advance, and then this is the no payoff. No and... montage? Nothing. Yeah, not even a single goddamn training montage or a, before I became a district attorney, I was a pit-fighting champion who was super good at nunchucks. Yeah, he is really good with him. He knocks the guy's helmet into pieces. I think presumably killing him. Wow. I think if you want a a single panel visual metaphor for the way Adrian Chase goes about doing things, it doesn't get better than the one on page 12, where after he shoots a assassin in the head, he then ties him up. <laughs> like, what's mm. the fucking point of that? He does things ass backwards and needlessly violently. You've already shot the guy in the head and he's dead. Why are you restraining him? Because that's the fucking Adrian Chase method. Maybe he had a zombie concern. Oh, that's a legitimate concern, I suppose. But not if you have shot him in the head. Touche. Adrian Chase, what the hell? Yeah, 
Even if you had zombie concerns. Bad job, They man. may be allayed once you have shot a man in the back of the head. That is so true. I was surprised at the graphic headshot violence that we saw in this comic book. There were several instances where you could see people literally getting shot in the head and blood or whatever splattering. This is a very high body count issue. Many of the people who were dying in this issue are the, let's call them the D-minus team. <laughs> that the monitor assembles for Scarapelli. So let's just go through the extraneous bad guys that are introduced somewhat needlessly into this issue, many of whom are quickly disposed of. Let's start off with the Monitor himself. What'd you think of him? Um, what's his deal? He just floats around in a kind of satellite thingy, monitoring bad guy shit and uh, taking commissions on connecting bad guys with bad guy labor? Yeah, more or less, at this point. He ends up playing a pivotal role in the Crisis on Infinite Earth series hmm. that Wolfman spearheaded that came out later, but he kind of got repurposed to do that in a way that almost makes sense. But at this point in the continuity, the Monitor is a character that Wolfman had really high hopes for. I was reading this interview. He initially conceived of him as a character called the Librarian, but as he said, that was before I got good at naming people. <laughs> Because he got so good at naming people. He keeps recycling old names. And let's look at the names that he comes up with in this issue. For the bad guys. There is Bazooka, who has a bazooka. Bazooka Joe. Is he Bazooka Joe? He's chewing the gum. Okay, but he has a bazooka. And he's got the little hat. I suspect that he is named because he carries a bazooka, not because of his favorite brand of chewing gum. He has styled himself after the character on the chewing gum. Was the character on the chewing gum super racist? I hope not. I hope not too, but it honestly wouldn't surprise me. Mm. We also get The Scorcher, which is a name that is, again, recycled from an old Teen Titans comic. We get Tanker, mm -hmm. which is dumb. That's We can agree that's a dumb name, right? Sure. And Slasher which is a lazy name, especially as she seems more into stabbing than slashing. Or throwing. Mm -hmm. We get Cheshire, which I don't understand why she is called that. I guess maybe because she disappears like the Cheshire cat, but she's good at poisons and all of the other naming conventions. It made me wonder if like she was supposed to be like, because she's good at Cheshing. Like uh, she's the Cheshire, slasher. like slasher, tanker, scorcher, mm -hmm. Cheshire, and spear. Which we can get into later. Mm. But I would maybe say that Marv Wolfman should not necessarily at this point congratulate himself at how good at naming things he's gotten. Especially because many of the names he's come up with recently were names that he came up with around the same time he came up with the name The Librarian. Like, you know, Starfire, which he used from an old name. Mm -hmm. Jericho is a character he's going to introduce soon, which is a character name that he came up with back in the old Teen Titan run and didn't get a chance to use. He's just got like five or six names he likes to use that he recycles. And then when he tries to come up with new ones, I am not impressed. But Monitor is a character who, yeah, basically is a, like a middle management guy who lives on a satellite who, who helps bad guys find other bad guys. Mm -hmm. Later, he ends up helping to resolve a potential world-ending crisis and drawing together a group of heroes and villains and getting them to work together. And you find out that all of his villain stuff, like arranging he was doing, was so that he could gain the trust of supervillains and later get them to work with heroes. So this is all just resume building on his part. Wow. Yeah. 
It's an interesting version of a retcon. I kind of like how that got executed. Yeah. His assistant, Lyda, we don't really learn anything about. Pretty lady. Yep. Nice outfit. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into the the D-minus team that he assembles to work for Scarapelli. Okay. Bazooka. What a piece of garbage. Yeah, man. Just keep saying awful racist shit. Like, at the very beginning, I was like, okay, I get it. And then the second panel, I was like, no. I st- yeah, I, no. You I don't need to keep doubling down on yeah. that he's a racist turd. Yeah. And I don't think he gets killed. Scorcher we see get killed. Slasher we see get killed. I was like, dude, if you're going to kill somebody, it should be this dude. It's Dirty Dozen rules. You're happy when fucking Maggot gets killed. Mm-hmm. He's the gang's Maggot. He should get killed. We see him being racist to Spear, and we see him being racist to Cyborg, and it's frustrating, and everybody talks about how shitty it is that he's racist, but he still says his stuff, and it's kind of unnecessary, and I get that he's a bad guy, but I didn't really see the point of it. And with the Spear character, too, while we're on the topic of representation and That's race and comics. That's the thing. Yeah. It's... I'm Okay, so I'll just take a... I'll I'll make a racist caricature and then have another character say racist things about it so that he's the racist, not me for creating this racist caricature that is Mr. T, but throwing spears at people. Mm -hmm. And with not very good English because he's maybe from somewhere where... It's tough. I couldn't tell what kind of accent he, he was supposed to have, even though it was clearly phonetically spelled out. I was getting Cajun for some reason. Hmm. He's one of a few characters who has a phonetically spelled out accent who doesn't use the word mebby. Mm-hmm. Ferentino, you no cheat your partner again, eh? He no like that. He get plenty mad. But now he be happy, eh? He be plenty happy. He hire spear... Oh, God, I can't read this shit. That's not good. It's a problematic character who is a broad racial caricature, and then I feel that is attempted to be mitigated by having an explicitly racist character be racist against this racial stereotype uh, in a way that doubles down on it in a weird way that I found very off-putting. Yeah, the whole, like, him being called by the racist bazooka guy a, a spear chucker, but his whole character is... Is throwing a spear. About, that's what he... Yeah. Mm. Not great. Not great. We also get... As I mentioned before, the Scorcher, who I was really hoping is supposed to be the same character from the old Teen Titans series, from Teen Titans 10. He was the dopey motorcycle gang guy who wore the fireman's hat. And was one of the first characters to get the Titans to do their signature move of recognizing a trap and then walking blindly into it and getting trapped and falling for it. Right. In the big scramble out in the desert. I remember. So, in my mind, it is the same character. He just grew up and then got really into fire, which is the only characterization we see of him in this, is that, like, he's an arsonist who is trying to be a professional, but is also like, you guys, you need to be a professional. And also, look at the fire. Mm, God, that fire. It's so good. It's, Love the fire it, so much. In the little bits of dialogue we do get from him, his kind of sexual fascination with fire is super clear and it yeah. comes out really creepy. Yeah, I actually kind of enjoyed that. that was, it but I, I think that was a development of the original Scorcher character. Hmm. And I'm sorry to see that he died. <laughs> he died of nunchucks by a district attorney that was some who next recently level had heart surgery. Well, yeah. Then we get 
Tanker. Tanker, we don't really learn that much about. He's a guy in a robot suit because he had an accident. He's kind of like a bad guy version of Robot Man, I think, sort of. Except for instead of just his brain, he's just a dude inside a robot suit. Is there not an instance of Cyborg being referred to as Robot Man in this? There is, and I really enjoyed it. Mm. I, I want to get back to that because I think it falls under the broader umbrella of media caricatures, and mm -hmm. I want to kind of do a whole section on it, sure. but I did enjoy that. So I know that comparison is the Thief of Joy and whatnot, but I think if Borgi takes a look at Tank's situation, maybe he'd be less mad at his dad. Yeah, well, he's, he's less mad at his dad now because he learned that anger is stupid and he never wants to be angry. True, but he still struggles with his, you know, quasi-humanness. Sure, due to his, sure. His but yes, he's definitely ways. better off than Tanker. And Tanker seems like a real piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Likes killing people. Likes killing people. Decided that that's nice. He's he's cool with his situation of being trapped in a robot husk. In large part, it seems, because he found a new hobby in murder, murder. for pay. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's the murder machine? Maybe. The I've issue is called Murder Machine, and uh, it's tough to tell if it's the Mafia, if it's Vigilante, if it's possibly Tanker. Tanker is the only, I think, literal murder machine in the issue. Hmm. Yeah, it's probably about him. Okay. <laughs> wow, subtle. Yeah. Subtle appearance for mm -hmm. titular character. Yes, yes. I think maybe, like, the whole story is supposed to be about his journey. You just gotta read between the lines. Yeah, man. yeah. That leaves us with Slasher, who seems pretty cool. I mean, shes it's a dumb name because she mostly throws stilettos at people. Mm -hmm. And again, the two black characters on the bad guy team are named for their weaponry, and their weapons are respectively a spear and a switchblade. So not great. Yep. But I did like her, kind of. She's very good with that switchblade at throwing it. Like, she keeps just picking off parts of Beast Boy. Like, first she stabs him in the tail... And then she she cuts his wings off when he's a fly. Okay, so if Beast Boy's wings are removed when he's in the form of an insect, and then he transforms back to a human, and all he's got on a is a cut on his shoulder. Uh huh. I call bullshit. Well, what do you think happens when he gets stabbed in the tail and turns back into human? <laughs> I was wondering that too. <laughs> Because it really looks like he gets stabbed right in the tail. Yeah, and it says that he did. And, and they don't bring it up again. He's not. He does say that she nearly put a rut in his butt. Oh, that's true. <laughs> nearly, though. Yeah. So what the heck? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the transform back to human version equivalent of a tail is. Um, <laughs> it's not his dick, is it? I don't think so. That's something no. wrong. Because I think monkeys have both of those things. Yeah, no. I guess it would just be like his, his small, butt. Of, small of his back, like the top of his butt. Oh, yeah, like his butt top. Yeah. Yeah. Coin, coin slot. Yeah. This <laughs> <laughs> is right in the old tramp stamp. Yep. That's got a sting. Yeah. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to mind that too much when he turns back into a human. I can't believe I just... Sorry, Beast Boy. But, turns out Slasher gets shot in the head by a vigilante. Yep. So, okay, guess we're done with her. Mm-hmm. Next. Cheshire. What do you think of Cheshire? Well, we're assembling a somewhat multicultural cast of stereotypes from around the world. Sure. I couldn't actually get a read on, do you think she's supposed to be Asian? She didn't seem to be drawn as though she were. It's once again kind of Lilith syndrome. Raised that, that way because she had like the old Chinese So she's first. culturally Asian, but we don't know about genetically. Mm -hmm. So she works in a murder massage parlor. 
See, this was the type of thing that happened before we had Yelp. <laughs> I mean, Yelp gets a lot of shit, and deservedly so, but uh, you see a couple of zero stars, I got murdered yeah. reviews, then maybe you stop going to that, uh, not, that particular bordello. Not a happy ending. <laughs> no. <laughs> Especially as you see that the poison that she has poisoned this dude with, because when we first see her, she has just poisoned a dude, and then is getting her new assignment. She spills some of it on the floor and it eats a hole in the floor. Mm -hmm. I would feel like that is not a subtle poison. We we were supposed to believe that she is a master of various poisons. I feel like you take like the first tiny sip of that you're like oh no i'm i'm not going to drink this i mean habanero i don't want to be rude but this literally made a hole in my lip so i'm going to stop drinking it before it gets into my tummy yeah i mean that would be what i would do that's maybe i'm maybe i'm just not a good guest like maybe this is just a courtesy issue so rude i'm sorry But we get to see a little bit more of Cheshire in that we see that she is perhaps the most efficient member of the team, with the possible exception of the dearly departed slasher. She tangles with Starfire and does a real, real good job incapacitating her, at least briefly, Mm -hmm. but also recognizing Starfire's intelligence and battle prowess, and also really hard flirting with her. Yeah, that that was interesting. But I just backtracking a tiny bit. How did who did she hear from that Starfire was the dummy on the team? How does that work? I'm assuming they're like a dossier. The villains get together and they're like, she seems dumb. Yeah, she's too pretty to be smart. Yeah, probably, mm. probably Beast Boy. Honestly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, do they have a like a dossier that's like you know not good with numbers, but shoots star balls real good? I don't. I don't know. I think that that's just kind of gen- general reputation from other perhaps culturally biased supervillains. All right. I would say, like, Dr. Light doesn't seem particularly tight-lipped about things. And he also seems like a real asshole who would probably just be like, she doesn't know our customs, therefore she's dumb. That's true. So I think that kind of reputation would probably get around the supervillain community. But I really did enjoy... Cheshire was flirting hard with Starfire. Uh, let, let's just take a look at some of that dialogue. I'm sorry, dear Starfire. You may be smarter than I believed, but you are as beautiful as I was told. It's a shame that I must scar such lovely features. Who are you? I'd love to tell you my real name, but I never mix business with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. And then she does a, a cool, like, it's a wrestling move called a hurricanrana, where she, uh, like, grabs her heads in some leg scissors and then flips her over into a dumpster. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. It's pretty badass. And then she grabs Kid Flash and uh, poisons him with her poison claws, which the panel in which she does that is the one where it is recognizably not Romeo Tangal inking this and is mm. definitely Pablo Marcos. That was on page 31. It's one of the panels where mm-hmm. that's really clear and it's much more cartoonish and oddly stylized than... We're used to, and that I think really works with George Perez's drawing style. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's Cheshire, and she escapes because of her good, good poisoning. And mm-hmm. she also manages to dodge a sniper bullet from Vigilante. So overall, I'd say she's probably the winner of this squad, and she is the one that has the most impact. She is a fairly influential supervillain going forward. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So that's the bad guys, with the exception of the Mafia and their more traditional mob war. Except for there's a bunch of backpack mask guys who fly out of a bunker and 
murder a lot of people. We don't know if those were obtained through the monitor or if those are just some jetpack assassins that Scarapelli had lying around. Mm-hmm. The whole mob war thing is kind of weird. I enjoy to a certain extent the infighting in the mafia as a backstory. We do learn that the mafia is surprisingly progressive and that the big head of it is a woman who is mm-hmm. the godmother mm-hmm. who is Donna Omasita. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like homicide uh, oh, without the H. Oh, oh, I get it. Mm. I get it. Yeah, good for her. But yeah, she looks kind of like uh, Carl Lagerfeld. Who's Carl Lagerfeld? He's a fashion man. I think that's his name. Okay. What? And he looks like that? Yep, totally. Okay, good to know. I was going to go with the uh, Gary Oldman Dracula at the beginning of oh, this one. Oh, that's Dracula. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, but either way, it's a very distinctive look for a uh, mob boss. And I am a little bit embarrassed to say I was delighted that she made it out alive and maybe we'll see more of her. That's, you don't have to be embarrassed. Yeah, well, I mean, she's a bad person. Both her and Scarapelli are bad people. That's true. So we talked about how a lot of the bad guys in this are named after various weaponry, like your spear and your bazooka and your tanker and your slasher. Right. And your Cheshire. Yeah. Because she's just cheshes everybody. Yeah, you chesh with the best, you die like the rest. We get a minor character who has that too. Uh, one of Scarapelli's henchmen is a dude named Garrett. Oh. Or Garrot? I don't know how to... I've never, I've know never how to known how to pronounce that. I think it's, I think it's Garrett. Garrett. I, I, I think it's Garrett. See, I think it's Garrett because I think that's how Edna Garrett got her name on uh, The Facts of Life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you get that, to be head that of that boarding school, Corey. Terrifying. Yeah, I know. Oh. Why do you think they stayed in line? I, That's the only way you can control badasses like Joe and Blair. Yeah. Is fear. Threaten them. Fear. With... Otherwise, Tootie and, Tootie and uh, Natalie are going to be all all over the place. That is an Be all higgledy-piggledy. Impressive recall of names from a show that I haven't seen for a very long time. I think I may know all of the actresses' names, too. That does not surprise me. There was. Kim Fields was Tootie. Mindy Khan was Natalie. Nancy McKeon was Joe. That's true, too. I'm right. I'm and fuck it. I don't know, Blair. Oh. Um, three for four. Oh. Anyway. Oh, fuck. Nobody tell Mrs. Garrett. <laughs> Otherwise. <laughs> or she'll use her piano wire to cut my head off. Curtains. Yep. I wonder if that's what happened to Blair. We'll never know. <laughs> yep. But I liked that guy. I liked having the henchman named, uh, <laughs> named Mrs. Garrett. Named Mr. Garrett. Mr. Oh, Garrett. Oh, maybe that was her husband. Oh, maybe so. Yeah. Ran off to join Scarapelli. So, that's the bad guys. Wait, sorry. Before we move on, there's just one last bad guy, Joseph. <laughs> I really liked Joseph. <laughs> we gotta talk about it. He's yes. gonna come. He gets one line, and it is when Raven shows up and is just like, Hey, mafia people, maybe don't murder each other. Knock it off. Everybody go home. Wow, that was a good Raven. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's basically Stephen Strange, but a lady ghost. Mm-hmm. That's, how you, that's how you do a Raven impression. Okay. But when she says that, Joseph's response is, I don't like her. Kill her. He's admonished for that by Donna Omicida. Yeah, she's like, well, let's listen to her first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's the way it's said to us. I don't like her. 
kill her. Mm-hmm. It just seems like he is a petulant child who is used to getting his way, and his way includes a lot of murder. Yep. But yeah, I also noted that about <laughs> Joseph. It was going to come up later. I had it as a potential zinger. <laughs> <laughs> But I think you're right. Oh. It probably falls a little bit out of that That's category. Harsh. Are you ready to move on to the other side of the equation? The purported good guys. Sure. So let's talk about our titular titans. Robin's a real dick. Yeah, it's really just doubling down on the whole, like, I hate Batman, but I want to be Batman. And just, thing. like, using Batman-like methods to, like, manipulate his teammates. There was, I think, an inadvertent example of this when they are all voting on whether to go along with Robin's plan of harassing Scarapelli's operations. We see he proposes his plan, and everybody votes, and we see them raising hands and agreeing to it. We see Tara's hand going up and say, yeah, why not? Cyborg's hand going up and saying, sure. Donna's hand going up and saying, conditionally, yes. Beast Boy saying, of course I'm with you. And Starfire saying, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. In the middle of that, we see Robin raising his hand and saying, I'll go along. Dude, you can't do that. <laughs> I think that's supposed to be Kid Flash's hand, but there's a coloration where it is a green glove. So it is clearly Robin raising his hand, hand and saying, yeah, I'm with Robin. He seems great. Let's listen to him. <laughs> oh, wow. It's your ventriloquist. They're all on, looks like everybody's on my side. I can't believe I missed that. (laughs) It really cracked me up. Yeah, no, that totally looks like a Robin glove. Wait, Kid Kid Flash doesn't wear green gloves. No, he doesn't. That's why it's it's Robin. Robin. Yeah, Kid Flash abstained from voting, presumably because he had quit the team. But he's still just hanging around. Doing a bad job. Seriously, dude, how can we miss you if you won't leave? Well, how is everybody going to know that he still doesn't like Raven? Oh, God. I'm so sick of Wally's bullshit. It's getting old, man. Yeah. How many issues do you think it's going to be of him hanging around and just being like, well, I did quit the team, but here I still am. I don't see it changing. No, I'm just I'm just tired of it. Tired of your shit, Wally. Yep. Go home. Get that turkey cutter. Yep. Just go home. Take care Fucking, of I guess you got to probably kill your dad because you're the man of the house now. Yep. And just keep carving turkeys. You probably eat a lot of turkeys. I was also, we see that uh, Raven. <laughs> Why does he eat a lot of turkey? Well, because he's got a super fast metabolism. Oh, I see. And it's a big bird. So. It's a big bird, and he probably needs the tryptophan just to get back to normal, man. Oh, okay, okay, man. <laughs> get off that high. Yeah, sure. You gotta <laughs> eat a lot of turkey. You gotta eat a lot of turkey if you got super speed. I get it. So that's why he needs the electric carver. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. He's moving super speed. The electric carver is moving at, su- at, like, you know, its vibrational speed. He should just carry that goddamn turkey carver around with him more. It could be a fearsome weapon. Yeah. I bet it could vibrate, like, through all of the molecules. It could probably, like, do some nuclear shit. Ooh, scary. Yeah. Mm. Oh, man, if there is a character I do not want to have nuclear powers, it is Kid Flash. Damn. Bad. I mean, he pretty much already has super speed, which is the crazy nonsense power that can do anything. Can. So it's infinity plus one to his powers. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Yes, he does, but I also feel like that is sort of interchanged among the team members as it fits, like, we need a deus ex machina here. Yep. Wonder Girl, you suddenly can do anything. Yeah, I guess they, they do have kind of a rotating omnipotence hat. <laughs> like, she's like, oh god, Tanker is killing me. I'm just real strong now, I'll smash him to bits. Yeah. Oh no, he's too strong for me. 
Maybe if I try hard and wish I was stronger. Hey, I'm stronger. God, I wish. Thanks, I was. Greek gods. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was like that in <laughs> real like, life? Yeah, you're just like, oh, man, boy. I kind of suck at this. I'm just gonna not <clears throat> suck at it anymore. Hey, <laughs> yeah, boy, that would be pretty great. Oh, good thing. That was uh, I talked about watching the Music Man last week. That's kind of his method for t- instructing musicals. The Think Method. Is that a, like an acronym or? No, it just... was just you think real hard about trying to play a song and then you can play it on a musical instrument you've never played before. Mm. Yeah, spoiler alert, it ends up working. That's dubious. Yes, a bit. Well, the Music Man is a dubious character. Traveling salesman. Oh. Don't trust him. Mm. Don't let him sleep in your barn. He's going to try to have sex with your daughter and your wife, according to every joke. I am at a loss, but I will take that <laughs> advice. I'm just saying. I have neither a daughter nor a wife, but still. Listeners, never let a traveling salesman sleep in your barn. No good will come of it. Hmm. Kid Flash mentions that he's maybe losing his super speed, which is a new twist. We'd known that he had been slow in the previous issue. I assumed that was to him being a house divided, which could not stand. Turkey. Not knowing if he wanted to quit the team and go home and eat turkey all day or not. Turkey OD. Maybe yeah. that was the problem. Too much turkey? Too much. You know mm-hmm. how it is after Thanksgiving. Yeah, probably. So we'll find out, I assume, in the next few issues whether the whole issue has been too much turkey for him. Although, it seems dumb if they're going to have him lose his powers because then why have him go through all of the, like, do I want to be on this team or not? Dumb. Tara also apparently loses her powers, but has kind of the same Wonder Girl thing where she's like, ah, there's fire, I can't use my powers. Is that a weakness she had exhibited previously? Or is it just that she's having trouble concentrating because she's in pain? Yeah, freaked out, like, oh, I don't want to burn to death. I'm going to have to think real hard to move the earth. Yeah, but it would seem like the thought process would be like, oh no, I'm being burned to death, or I'd, I'd better use my powers, not, I'm being burned to death. No, I can't use my powers. And then, I can use my powers, so I do. It seemed kind of weird. But I do like the thought process that she's going through, where she's like, I don't really want to stop the mob. They seem great, but I just do still need the Titan's secrets. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to tell her this morning. Didn't they agree that at the end of the last issue? Oh, fucking Robin. Oh, yeah. She's like, hey, everybody, fucking... you have to go fight my gang war. Yeah. Well, I hang out at home. Yeah. Because they have a restraining order. <laughs> God, he's so bad about flouting the law, too. He also has that whole thing where, like, the the press started to question him. And he's like, no comment. And they're like, okay, but, uh, what about this? And he's like, ah, all the comments. Yeah. Adrian Chase is great. And if he did anything bad, it's only because he cared too much and loved the law so much that he had to break the law all the time. You people are scum. No I'm comment. Yeah. And I'm a man, not a boy. Maybe that's a big part of uh, this whole thing. There is that, but it is explicitly stated by one of Scarapelli's malls. I thought he was a boy, but he's a man. And then we cut to him standing with his uh, legs splayed in his chainmail speedo. Mm-hmm. Being a man. Yep. Those boots he has are really goofy looking. The whole outfit, I like it. It's really goofy, though. And... When he puts on his super serious face and he's still wearing his Peter Pan, but with yellow and red. It's the shorts. Well, it's the short shorts, but it's also the little booties. The little booties are, it's 
when he it's kicks very, the guy in the face, it just... It's very Peter Pan, I'm going to be a boy forever. I'll never grow up. Yeah. But I will kick you in the face with my savat kick. It really takes the edge off the violence of that kicking somebody in the face when those those little Peter Pan shoes are involved. <laughs> Maybe more embarrassing for them. It's also, I, I know I've brought this up before, but even if he's going for a Robin-themed costume, not a lot of green and yellow on a Robin. No. Like, I get the red breast, but, like, not only is his outfit bad for nighttime surveillance work, which he uses it for all the time, but it isn't even themed after the bird that he's purporting to be. Bad job. Yeah. Cyborg doesn't really do too much. Beats up Bazooka. It's just, like, messed up and gets it fixed, I guess. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of fun interplay between him and Terra, but there's also a couple of panels in which Terra is just draped all over him like a backpack. It's like he's giving her a piggyback ride while he's sitting down. Mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out what was going on with that. I chose to read it as a, just like a affectionate, like, like a, I don't know. They just start climbing big, on him. Big, big him brother. Like, yeah, yeah. But they, they did have some fun interplay. Like, with be, just like, like she's some a beast boy. Name calling. Like she's being, oh, like no. a female beast boy. Okay. Like, oh, Beast Boy, like, is his best friend. I'm going to be his best friend, too. Oh, oh, Beast Boy's always turning into a snake and draping himself around people. I'll just do that, only I can't turn into a snake. Yeah. So. Somehow less creepier. Yeah. Well, less creepy than Beast Boy is a pretty low bar to set for yourself. <laughs> True. Donna briefly considers quitting the team because she's going to get married soon. She doesn't know if they need her anymore. But then she has such a good time ripping Tanker apart that she's like, yeah, I guess they need me. It's worth doing this to keep creeps like him and Bazooka dead. I feel like she would be very bored if she made a rapid transition to just total domestic. Yeah, I, I think she would too. And I mean, we don't know if she quits the superhero business. That doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to quit her other career as a uh, fashion photographer. I would assume not. I don't know. Terry Long might be like, I make all this money teaching history at the community <laughs> college. You can, You're you a kick, kept woman now. Kick your heels up, babe. Yeah, he does have that sweet, sweet community <laughs> college professor income. Yeah. Boy, it's free sodas for everybody. <laughs> free sodas. Yeah, but she does decide she, she doesn't want to quit the team, which is good. And I have really actually been enjoying in the last few issues the leadership role that she has taken with the team. I think she makes more sense as a team leader than Robin, frankly. I think she's got a much a better style. It's more of a consensus building, but it's still pretty authoritative. Yeah. She has a combination of intelligence and emotional intelligence and listens to people, but still makes her own decisions. Yeah. And also, having her lead the team is like having a built-in HR department because uh, she can just do her grief counseling for them. Okay, so that's still not her strongest <laughs> suit. Oh, gosh. It's a shame that she couldn't talk to Adrian Chase at the end when Robin's trying to tell him not to kill the guy. Yeah. I wish that was Donna just saying, like, hey, I know your wife and son just got blown up and killed, but that was like a week ago. So get over it. Calm down and go back to being a terrible district attorney. Yeah. If only she was there to steer him right. Raven. Raven. Poor Raven. God damn. She tries to go back to Azeroth, which, I mean, when she left Azeroth, 
they said she couldn't come back. Then when she went back to Azeroth, they said, now you definitely can't come back. And then she tries to go back again and is surprised that they're like, no, you can't come back. That being said, they're a bunch of fucking dicks. I don't like the Azerathians. You were gone for when we covered the Raven solo issue. Mm -hmm. But we learn that Trigon is an amalgamation of all of the evil from the Azerathian souls that they cast out and just like were cosmic somewhere. litter bugs with. And that formed Trigon, who is a genocidal goddamn maniac who has killed entire universes. And so then they're like, oh, we can't let the evil that's inside of you into Azeroth because we're the ones who it came from. I did not know that. Yeah, they're a bunch of fucking dicks. Also, they decided to let a bunch of beardo weirdos run things when uh, originally it had been a strong matriarch named Azar who was running the show. So, fuck those Azerathians. I don't care for them. Raven, although I think she displayed poor judgment and was perhaps needlessly optimistic in trying to get them to take her back, does a good job in this issue. Agreed. Heals up Kid Flash even though he's being a dick. Tries to stop all the mob people from murdering each other. Mm -hmm. Good job, Raven. Starfire still acting like a goddamn doormat for Robin. She briefly takes charge and drags him up to the top of a tall building and is like, look, we are going to talk things out. And he's like, uh, uh, and then she's like, stop talking. Tries to kiss some <laughs> and then sense smooch, into him. Tries to smooch some sense into him, yep. uh, which doesn't work very well. And then somebody tries to shoot them and then that person gets shot. Speaking of Starfire, there was a thing that I forgot about in her exchange with Cheshire. Yeah. That... Starfire is flying around, like, thinking to herself what her plans are going to be. And then Cheshire says, Aha! Good plan! But blah, blah, blah. Did you catch that? I did. And at first I was like, shit, is Cheshire telepathic? But I think that her plan was to destroy the water tower and put out the flames. And so I think she was just flying towards a water tower. Uh, And Cheshire's like, hey, don't do that. Put two and two together. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. That's That's what I figured was happening. Although it did seem as though either... Starfire was expositioning aloud to herself, or Cheshire was telepathic. I think that Starfire was telegraphing her move. Fair enough. So, the other characters that we get to see in this are the depictions of the media. This is really fun. It is a storytelling device that is used throughout the issue. You compared it to Robocop. I think Robocop owed a great deal to The Dark Knight Returns. Frank Miller's comic book, and I had not realized it, but I think Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns definitely has the same feel as this issue, and this issue came out about three years before it. I really like that so much storytelling in it is done through the media, through various news reports of what's happening. It's uh, almost an epistolary story. Sorry, what does that mean? I might be using the wrong word, but I think it's one that's told through uh, letters or sources like like that like dracula Mm -hmm. was one and i think it's really well done and some of the weird little touches that are put in are there are a number of fake products that the newscasters will do little brief commercials for you like this news segment is brought to you by and the ones of those that we get are fish and stick the new sushi flavored peanut butter yeah so that was the first one that i wrote down yeah what the fuck honestly I think just making fun of the very idea of sushi 
was a big thing in the early 80s. It was new to America, and everybody was all just like, this is crazy, raw fish. There's a ton of jokes about sushi in like any movie that came out around that time. I don't know if there were like a lot of different peanut butter flavors that were just coming out around then. Really, the only peanut butter flavor I know of is peanut butter. I guess you get some honey roasted peanuts, but I don't think it's necessarily analogous to raw fish flavored peanut butter. But it seemed like a very 80s reference and I enjoyed it. Got it. Yeah, I, I thought it was probably just a play on sushi's weird and gross. But... Yeah, I think that's that's what it was. Okay. The second we get is Rat Trap. It squashes rats dead. Which I think is a reference to Raid, It Kills Bugs Dead. Right. Which was, yeah, for mm. the, yep. the bug killing spray. Raid, It Raid. Kills Bugs Dead. Yeah. Then we get Gator, the beer for preppies of all ages. I got that one too. Yeah, it's like oh. Izod shirts. Little Lacoste. Uh, yeah, Lacoste alligators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that was kind of fun. And then the final one is... Tweet, the bird-flavored cat food, which I think is about Tweety Bird, but also you know, there's a lot of bird-flavored cat foods if that bird is chicken. Sure. So those, I, I thought they were little fun touches, and there are a number of other ways in which they are just kind of trying to make the media seem stupid. We get, had Robin's exchange with them in which they are asking what to his mind, and I think supposed to be for us, the reader, are kind of like ghoulish questions about a recent tragedy. There's a part where it's, Boy Wonder attacks suspected mobster, and Cheryl Ladd to portray Mother Teresa. More news and sports at 11. That was, I think, my favorite one. That was a um, good one. But we also get, as the new Teen Titans are entering the courtroom, one of them says, And I think I even recognize one of them. The first to go in is Robot Man. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, that's Cyborg. Which, a couple of things about that. It is a fun mix-em-up, but secondly, I think it is ridiculous. We are now acknowledging that racism does exist in the DC Universe in characters like Bazooka. I think it is ridiculous that it would not be noteworthy to anyone that Cyborg is, at this point perhaps, certainly one of the only black superheroes. That people wouldn't notice that about him seems really dumb. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Wolfman was probably like, oh, I don't want to call that out. And yep, so like, I'll just, uh, the, uh, whatever their other faults are, the media is colorblind. Mm -hmm. Which, yes, at the at that time, I think it was still the height of acceptance and liberaldom to consider oneself colorblind. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, is silly. It is pretty silly. Uh, I know we, we talk about accents and uh, whatnot sometimes, and there was one good, because we have the mob in here, and, and we did get a nice, Mamma Mia! <laughs> when, the, when the dead guy, who's needlessly tied up, <laughs> I forgot about that. I thought you might get a chuckle. Yeah, I did. It always... Black Belt Jones, man. Yeah. Every time. Every time I think of that, I think of Black Belt Jones, where it is the mafia who is obviously played by non-Italians mm -hmm. saying, Mamma Mia, I'm trying to eat my spaghetti over here. Yeah, it's very much a Black Belt Jones moment. Yeah. God, I love Black Belt Jones. Really problematic movie on a number of levels, but I really enjoy it. Jim Kelly is a fine, fine, fine martial actor. artist. Yes, and Scatman Crothers is a fine sensei at a dojo. <laughs>
You ready to get into the minutia? I think we should. All right. Hit it, Rick. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Well, Corey, hmm. what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh boy, there were a few. There were indeed. Okay, my favorite one, it's, I have a backup too, but my favorite one is, I had to read it through several times before it worked for me, but is the mm-hmm. sound that a, a machine gun makes. Oh, and it's when uh, the vigilante uh, jerk face kills Scarapelli. He uses a submachine gun to do that. Oh, I didn't even realize that was the kind of gun he was using. I don't know what the difference between a machine gun and a submachine gun is. Uh, I think honest. a submachine gun is just under a machine gun. Okay, I think it was one of those. Or uh, perhaps an underwater machine gun. Mm. Or uh, like... the machine gun was busy that day. <laughs> And so they had to use a submachine gun, who usually will just put on a movie okay. and just, you know, try mm-hmm. to keep the kids from getting into any trouble. Sure. Yeah, it was probably one of those types. Yeah, so it was a, a, a submachine gun. Mm-hmm. And uh, the noise that a submachine gun makes is chud ud ah chud ud ah Yeah, but if, but if you... chud ud ah But if you think about it, it's like... Doo-doo-doo-doo. Oh, yeah. Which is a pretty hard sound to write. So. Yeah, so cha-da-da. Cha-da-da. It's a good sound for a submachine gun. Yeah, I think that is a good sound. Mm-hmm. I decided to go with scroom. What is a scroom? Scroom is the noise it makes when Cheshire uses a hurricanrana to toss Starfire into a dumpster. And it was just kind of cool. My backup was thunk. Uh, which is the noise it makes when Slasher stabs Beast Boy in the tail. I felt so bad for Beast Boy. That looked really painful. It really does. Also, if you're going with the naming convention of naming people after their weapons, Stiletto is a much better name than Slasher. That is true. Because then she could also wear, like, Stiletto heels or something. You know? Mm-hmm. It's impractical, but it's also pretty common in uh, evil ladies' supervillain outfits. So, just saying. Yeah. Got her some nice shoes. Heal it up. Yeah. How about we do a timestamp? Okay. Festival. Yeah, it is a festival of timestamps. There's a lot of them in this issue. Which one did you want to go with? Or do you want to just run through them all? I am going to go with page 42. Okay. In which uh, Lenny and Squiggy, characters from the Laverne and Shirley show that I remember ah. from childhood, were, yep. were mentioned. Yeah, where they get to go to the White House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what's funny is, I when doing research for the Waput section, I realized that that might have been a reference to that the month prior to this comic book um, was their last appearance. It was the last showing of the Laverne and Shirley show. Oh. And so they were talking about there being a special in which they got to go to the White House. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well done, Corey. Thank you. I mean, there are all of the different media mentions of, like, the Lacoste thing, the... Sushi bashing. Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa as being played by Cheryl Ladd, who is one of Charlie's angels. Mm-hmm. But I decided to go with both the implied Mr. T reference in that Spear looked like Mr. T and dressed like Mr. T mm-hmm. and had a mohawk like Mr. T. Mm-hmm. And Wait, had a spear like Mr. T? I didn't say that. I said had a mohawk. 
I thought you said, I was like, wait, no. I, I did no. not see this episode. No, Mr. T didn't have a spear that I know of. He had a badass van. He had a badass, yeah, he had a badass van and he had a cartoon where he led a team of gymnasts and solving crimes. He had a bad attitude. <sighs> On the A-team anyway. Yeah, no, bad attitude Baracus. Yeah. They had to give him some milk, knock him out, get him on an airplane. <laughs> what a bad that show. That show is so dumb. It's so dumb. Ugh. Ugh. But Tara references the fact that the character who is a stand-in for Mr. T looks like Mr. T. Mm-hmm. Kind of lazy, but but also just yep. put a little hat on it. Yeah, that Mr. T guy looks like Mr. T. It's a nice hat. Yep. Fits. Fits like a glove. Mm. Probably had a little hole cut out of it so that it'd fit over the mohawk. Hat glove. Yep. So, yeah, that was what I decided to go with. Although, there were a lot to choose from in this issue. There were a lot. Very reference-heavy. Yep. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. Okay. What instance of a character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? What was the best zinger? I don't know if it was the best zinger, but it was one that I don't think I had heard before. Mm-hmm. And with many of them in this issue, it seemed to be between Terra and Cyborg. There was some fun back and forth between them. And I liked it when she called him Kettlehead. I liked that too. I I had that noted. I also enjoyed just the back and forth when he's like, nice job, mudhead. And she's like, thanks, rust pot. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fun. Yeah. It's cute. And as mentioned before, I also did like the, I don't like her. Kill her. Zing. <laughs> yep. Ooh. Ouch. Burn. What was your favorite panel in this beautifully drawn issue? There was a lot of really good panels in here with good graphic, like graphical quality with a lot of contrast and whatnot. There was. There there was a lot of really good storytelling in terms of the, the artistry in this issue. I noticed that it was credited differently than it often is. Normally it just says co-creators Marv Wolfman and George Perez. And this one was described as Marv Wolfman and George Perez, writer, co-plotters, and layouts. And I think that speaks to the fact that this is kind of an extra issue and there was maybe some extra work to do and like different deadline things and it's much longer. I think they may have worked on a different method in this and that perhaps Perez contributed more to the plotting of it. Uh, I think this issue seems to, and I don't know what their general working pattern was, but this seems to have been more the Marvel method if you will, where they would have a discussion as to what the plot was going to be. And then the artist would just take it and draw the whole thing. And then the writer would come back in and plug in all of the dialogue. And I think when you have an artist like Perez who has such a strong sense of storytelling, I think that works really well. And I, I think that it, it paid off in this. That makes sense. Yeah. So what was your favorite panel? I liked page 35, um, Surprised Godmother, and this is when all of the jetpack guys fly out of this hatch in the ground with Mm -hmm. guns and armor and stuff, and then her image is superimposed on top of that with all of these kind of magenta exclamation-ish looking marks flying off from her head. Yeah, there's a lot of backgrounds like that in this. There's a lot of like almost anime style like sun rays shooting out in the background Mm -hmm. or just like cosmic stuff happening in the background when people are surprised and i think it worked really well and yeah that panel specifically pretty good 
pretty good. My favorite was a really minor moment on a really beautifully laid out double page spread. And it's all of the Titans hassling the Mafia and realizing that Scarapelli can't be directly tied to any of the things that they are busting, any of the operations that they're busting. And so all of that stuff is really cool and really well laid out and really well done. And at the end of each of them, they all report back to Robin, sorry, we can't tie this to Scarapelli. And eventually you get the reveal that he knows, he knows that they can't tie it to Scarapelli and he is just basically shutting him down economically so that he is forced to make moves in different directions mm-hmm. or whatever, but in a way that's kind of legally shady. But my favorite panel, I think, is when Donna is reporting back to Dick and telling him, sorry, we can't tie this to Scarapelli. And she's making the call on her wristband communicator. And in the background, just Beast Boy is turned into a monkey and just going to town on a banana. And it's just really weird and really cute. I really enjoy that. And in the page before that, we see another, it is almost a timestamp in that it is Beast Boy engaging in every New Yorker's favorite pastime of New Jersey bashing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I caught that as well. He's looking at a clipboard and he's saying, let's see, Libya, Vietnam, Guatemala, El Salvador, Newark. Yeah, they're going to all the trouble spots. But then he just turns into a monkey and eats a banana. Yep. That's cute. That's Beast Boy. Yep. Sartorially speaking, Corey, which fashion choices that were made in this issue do you think are worthy of note? It's come up before, but Vigilante. He's got this great ski suit, motorcycle guy suit. I don't know how to call it, but it's very sporty. It's very sporty. It really does look like a ski suit, but it's got like the a big V on his forehead that really looks like it might just be the design of the ski mask. And blue and white piping and a ski mask visor. It's a really cool look. I really like it. I would wear a tracksuit that was designed like that. It's cool colors too. Just the almost all black with, yeah, that blue and white accent, as you mentioned. And then like a yellow utility belt. Mm-hmm. It's a good look. And it's a shame that it's wasted on a piece of shit like Adrian Chase. I'm sure he didn't design it. No, he just fucking bought it at a sporting goods store, which is another thing that I like about it. That it's not like you have to picture him like sitting at home and sewing or something. Mm -hmm. Or doing a combination of sewing and welding or however it is you make a superhero outfit. I don't know. Yeah, not me either. I'm not a a superhero vigilante. (laughs) I, I have alibis, Corey. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it's a good outfit, but it's not the only good outfit in this issue. We get a couple of weird outfits. One of them is Starfire is answering the phone in one panel where she's just dressed like a straight up naughty nurse. Yeah. Yeah. What is up with that? Do you think? I think what is up with that is George Perez likes to draw sexy ladies. I, I That think, seems pretty reasonable. I think that's pretty much just like... Oh yeah, let's uh, let's have Starfire dressed like a sexy nurse. That'd be fun to draw. Mm-hmm. Like in a giant orange flame-haired supermodel. Yeah. Let's put her in a sexy nurse outfit. Sure. Seemed like a weird choice, but it's very pretty. Yep. My favorite outfit, though, belongs to Edna's husband, Garrett. And it is when he answers the door and sees the tied-up, for no goddamn reason, dude who has been shot in the head. He is wearing a green suit that he has taken the jacket off of 
And so it is just the green vest, green pants with a white tie over a yellow and black striped suit. And it is fucking dope as hell looking. Yeah. He's got his dapper handlebar mustache. It's real good. The study in contrast. It is. And uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed that outfit. It's nice. I would totally wear an outfit like that. There's two outfits I would wear that are in this issue. Vigilante outfit mm-hmm. and Edna Garrett's husband, Mr. Garrett. It's a good suit. It's a good suit. Now we're getting into it, man. Okay. So, who is the Aqualad of this issue? Which Titan did the best job? I, for this one, was actually a little bit refreshing for me, was, was able to go with Raven. She was having a really shitty time. She tried to go home. They said, get the fuck out. And then Wally, who's been a total jerk about everything, is in pain and she just shows up to make it better. Mm-hmm. And then she realizes that the other bunch of jerks that were causing a lot of this trouble were starting to kill each other. So she's like, I'll go try and stop that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked Raven. Good job, Raven. Good job, Raven, indeed. She was my backup choice. I decided to go with Donna. Mm-hmm. I thought Donna did a good job. She supported her friends, but not without limits. And she tried to hold Robin accountable for what he was doing and, like, made clear that she was not cool with what he was doing, but also did a good job and recognized that, like, I can't talk to him when he's like this. I'm not going to be able to dissuade him. I'm going to go along and try to minimize the damage that he's doing. She displayed that good, good Neville Longbottom courage from the Harry Potter, where (laughs) she's like, yeah, there's the courage of standing up to your enemies, but there's also the courage of standing up to your friends, and I think she did both. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was impressed with her. Uh, And also, you know, she got to hulk up and uh, beat up that uh, robot dude. Yeah, yeah. Trash man. No, not trash man. Tanker. Tanker. Tanker Tanker man. (laughs) Bad. Yeah, bad guy. Bad, bad guy. (laughs) Bad name. Yeah. He also looked like one of the space paranoids from Tron. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't care for that. Although I do like space paranoids. Okay. And I like Tron. Weird. Yeah. I'm a study in contrast. Like that suit. Mm-hmm. Conversely, which Teen Titan was the speedy, the worst of Teen Titans? Who did the worst job? Oh, Robin, you're such a bossy jerk. Ah, oh, he's a real piece of shit. I'm tired of Robin's crap. Same. Ah. Everything he did was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, they tried to make it like, oh, it's all okay now because he... Um, I forget why, but like they tried to sew it up, I felt like. Yeah, they they tried to put a button on it that he's just like, he oh. doesn't approve of Adrian Chase Chase's methods, but he was pushed too far. And... He went to Corey, told the truth, and now everything is fine. Yeah, the way he told the truth was dumb, too, and the cops are dumb in this issue. Like, I think he might have been the chief of police in Roadhouse, too, because it's a similar <laughs> type of resolution where it's... Robin's sitting there in a house with a man who has just died of murder. Mm-hmm. It's not his house. It's the murder man's house has been murdered in his house. And Robin is there. And he's like, Robin, did you see anything? And he's like, nope. And he's like, well, case closed. Yeah, I got shot. Yeah. Is that the end of Roadhouse? The whole town is has broken into uh, Ben Gazzara's house. Nobody likes him. They all hate him. He has just died of murder. And the way that they cover things up is to throw a gun into the other room. And the cop shows up and says, well, you're all here. You've all broken into this dead man's house after he's been murdered. What happened? And they're all like, 
I don't know. And he's like, well, this is an unsolvable case. You're all free to go to your respective homes. I can't arrest nine people. Mm -mm. Not even the guy that the polar bear fell on. Oh, boy. Tink. <laughs> the polar bear <laughs> fell on me. Last spoken word of that movie and the greatest last spoken words of any movie. One of the best. See, that's Robin. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, bad job, dude. Yeah, bad, bad job all around. You fucking hoodwinked your friends into breaking the law and, like, seemed proud of yourself for having done that. You continued to be a dick to Starfire, continued to be a dick all around, and having your name be dick is no excuse for that kind of behavior. Agreed. Boo. Whew. I am left with but one final question to ask of you, Corey. Yes? Wapoot! Indeed. Now, this is an annual... So we have a bit of leeway in this. We don't have a strict publication month, but I think we should limit it to the summer of 1983. So what was Aqualad probably up to, Cory Wapoot? So we know that Aqualad likes to laugh. Jovial young man. He loves fun. Loves himself a good, clean comedy. Sure. He's taken upon himself a little bit of a mission. Oh, he thinks that American comedy movies are the best. Interesting. And he wants to, to, to share that with the world and, and build bridges with our international friends and maybe former enemies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. One of his favorites is a gem from 1980, three years previous, mm -hmm. that you may remember, uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Well, I thought that was a horror movie, Corey. Scared the poop out of me. <laughs> it's supposed Terrifying. to be. It's supposed to be funny. Oh. I recall it being pretty not a good movie it was I, I wanted to enjoy that on an ironic level and was unable to do that even as a child yeah so aqualad thinks we should share this gem <laughs> of american cinema with our friends the germans ah how did that go uh, i don't know how it went over but he was successful because through his various efforts and on the 2nd of, of june he was able to finally bring it to the to the screen the big screen in, in germany hmm so that was one of the things that Aqualad was probably up to in the summer of 1983. Shortly after that, he had gotten back home and he went to the theater and saw Trading Places. Oh. And thought, this is the next film that I need to bring to the international stage. And that Excellent. was what he was probably up to. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that was one of, I feel like there were... A number of movies in the 80s that had a thing that was supposed to be hilarious of a gorilla raping a dude. <laughs> it wasn't just Trading Places? I don't think it was just Trading Places. I think that was kind of a trope. Okay. Yeah. That's weird. In retrospect, not great. Mm. Yeah. Also, yeah. Dan Aykroyd in blackface, not great. You know, Aqualad is, is many things, <laughs> but, I, you know, is a, a purveyor of fine cinema, maybe not a strong suit. But that's what he was probably up to. There was one pretty funny scene in Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. It is when the guy who is the master of disguise has infiltrated the Killer Tomato community. And he's just clearly a dude in a tomato suit sitting around a campfire. And they're all eating humans. And one of the tomatoes has passed him a human. And he's like, okay, I've got to go ahead and eat this human being or I'll be found out. And he says, got any ketchup? Yep. And then they eat him. Yep. Pretty good. I don't remember that, but it sounds pretty good. It's a pretty good joke. Ah. So yeah, that was maybe one of the things that Aqualad was probably up to in the summer of 1983. But that was not all he was up to. Mm. 
As you may recall from August of 1983, Aqualad had been warned by his friend Wong about the terrors of our neighbors to the north, Canada, and their strange and lawless land. Right. That, much like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, was filled with cannibalism. So Aqualad was checking things out in the DCU and finding that perhaps their version of Canada did not match with the Marvel Universe's version of Canada. He had checked out Edmonton, took in an Oilers game, uh, the height of Gretzky mania, Mm. was enjoying his stay in Edmonton, but decided he should go to Montreal, maybe check out the World's Fair. So he, he and Beaky got aboard a plane. He had to sneak Beaky aboard the plane because at the time they wouldn't allow pelicans on an airplane. No service animals. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays you can have either a service dog or a service miniature horse. Those are the two animals that are licensed as service animals by the ADA. Still no pelicans. Still no pelicans, sadly. Well, maybe part of the reason why no pelicans are allowed are because Beaky sure fucked stuff up. Oh no. His heart was in the right place, but... He snuck, like, an extra 40 or 50 gallons of water aboard the plane. Ooh, that's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff, and that led to some issues. You see, Beaky snuck that water aboard a flight from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, to Montreal, and as a consequence, that plane ran out of fuel. No, no. And was forced to glide to a landing in Gimli, Manitoba. Hmm. It was known as the Gimli Glider, and it ended up gliding itself to safety on a racetrack. Now, Beaky helped with that. Uh, I think he felt understandably chagrined and helped. Uh, he went outside the plane and helped uh, with Aqualad as his interpreter inside the plane. Talk about wind conditions and help guide the pilots through the process. And uh, Aqualad was delighted to land in Gimli and was so glad that everybody made it safely off of the airplane, but was a little bit disappointed because he's a big Lord of the Rings fan and he thought there'd be more dwarf shit there. Oh. But different Gimli Aqualad. But in June of 1983, that is what Aqualad was probably up to. He spent a lot of time in Canada. Oh. He really liked it there. It's nice. filled with polite young people like himself. Hmm. Yeah. I was just there. It's a good place. Yeah. And that is Waput. Well, thank you, Corey, for joining us on this extra-sized issue, the New Teen Titans Annual. This is an issue we are covering thanks in part to the generous donations from our Patreon donors. Uh, If you would like to join us in that and see that we bring extra content like this to you, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland, and I would certainly appreciate that. But if you do not feel like contributing monetarily, I fully understand it. Keep in touch with us. You can get into touch with us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are on Twitter. Uh, If you want to tweet about the show, that always helps and also always puts a smile on my face. Had some fun Twitter exchanges about the giant-sized Defenders issue that we put out last week. And, yeah, I also just always love hearing from you guys. Uh, Spread the word about the show if you like it, however you can. One way to do that is leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever kind of podcatcher you're using there. Uh, And another way is to just uh, tell your friends. Start a newsletter. Visit the local library. Put up some flyers. Picket signs. Picket signs. Oh, picket signs would be great. (laughs) If you want to hold a protest somewhere that just is like, make tighten up the defense more popular. Yeah. Beaky forever. 
bring back the Pontiac Aztec. All that. Yeah. Yeah, take some pictures of yourself. Hold in a protest for tighten up the defense. Skywriting. That would be a fun way to do it. Sure. Uh, not necessarily skywriting, but having one of those banners that you put behind a uh, an airplane and fly it around the sky. It says, tighten up the defense forever. That would be pretty good. Oh. Paint the message on the side of a shark. Um, That's probably not a great way to spread the word. Don't do that. Yeah, don't don't harass sharks. It's not going to go well for either of you. Be they brave or not. Yes, they are brave, though. Don't do it. They're very brave. Mm. Love you, sharks. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. And we will be back next week with a regular-sized issue of The Thank Defenders. Goodness. Thank God. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. And they know it. What's another fun way people could spread the word, Corey? Could write a letter. Yeah, could write a letter. To your senator. Yes, yes. <laughs> write a letter to your senator. Did Jim tell you the story? Our stepdad had a friend who was visiting a town in New Hampshire where I think he was an engineer. Uh, but he was distressed that the water level in the toilet was too high. Oh, no. And so he wrote to the city council about it because <laughs> when he would poop the water and splash his balls. <laughs> Why would you write to the city council? I don't know. But, <laughs> I, but it put a line in my mind that I have not been able to get out since, which was, called my congressman and he said, Whoa, I'd love to help you, son, but your balls are too low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <sighs> yeah anyway thank you so much for joining us <laughs>